Dear Heavenly Loving Father, we pray that as we come to your book in the uh, book of Romans, that you really help us to understand uh, what is being said here, to understand the depths of our sin and the greatness of your grace in Jesus Christ. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was a teenager, I was walking along Stevens Road and Orchard Road one day, and you know, just hanging out. And one day this lady came up to me and asked me to do a survey. And she asked me whether I had read The Straits Times that morning, and I said, yes, I had. So she asked me all the articles which appeared on the front page. So I told her what was there. Then she asked me, okay, what were all the articles that appeared on the back page? And I told her all the articles that were there. And she said, congratulations, you are one of the few people who've got it all right. And uh, I was someone who really read the newspaper, because you know in your holidays you have lots of time. But if you ask me today... Uh, what I had read all those years ago, I really wouldn't have a clue. In fact, if you asked me what I read in the newspaper last week, I also wouldn't really remember what I'd read. There was a saying in Australia where it says, today's news is tomorrow's fish and chips wrappings. Right. So, I mean, the same way we could say that today's news is like tomorrow's pasamalam wrapping for your vegetables. Because news gets old really fast. It's no longer relevant, it's no longer applicable, it's no longer important. In a world where news lasts maybe a day, your Facebook post lasts half a day, and your Twitter post lasts a few hours, why should we be reading uh, a word that comes to us 2,000 years ago? And what relevance does it have to us? The book of Romans or even the Bible, which was written so many thousands of years ago, how is it relevant and applicable to us today. Well, right from the very beginning, Paul speaks to us and tells us that it is very important that we listen to what he's saying. So he begins in verse 1 by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, when we read the word here, a servant of Christ Jesus, we can probably only think of a modern-day equivalent as a domestic mate. But Paul means far more than that when he says that he is a servant of Christ. Literally, the word here, servant, is much closer to the idea of slave. Because in the ancient world, in Romans' time, the time of Romans, uh, one quarter to one third of the population of the Roman Empire would be made up of slaves. And to be a slave is not to be like a domestic mate today. In those days, to be a slave literally meant that the master could tell you what to do, who you could marry, whether you could have children, and exactly what your task would be. Now, Paul here says that he is that sort of a slave. He is a humble slave. He is totally at the disposal of Christ Jesus. But he is not a slave as in he's meant to look after the house like a domestic slave or a tutor to the children or an administrative slave to look after the affairs of the household. But rather, he says here that he is called to be an apostle. Now, the word called here, as Joshua Ng uh, preached to us at the church camp, is very misunderstood in today's world. You know, some people say, I'm one minute called to be a missionary, then God changes his mind, then he calls us to do something else. But when the Bible, especially here in the book of Romans, tells us that God called Paul, it means that Jesus Christ gave a clear and unambiguous call for him to do something. And what he was called to do was to be an apostle. 
Now again, this word apostle is quite confused in the modern world because there are people in Singapore who call themselves apostles. But they cannot possibly be apostles in the way that Romans uses apostles or the Bible in many ways uses apostles. Because in the Bible, to be an apostle means that you would have seen Jesus Christ personally or in the flesh or in some way. Jesus Christ would have personally called you to do something. And as a result, you would be an authoritative messenger of Jesus. So you need those elements. You need to see Jesus and Jesus needs to call you personally to be an authoritative messenger. And here we see that Paul is an apostle and he is an authoritative messenger and he's been set apart for the gospel of God. Now to be set apart here, which is the main idea of the passage, to be set apart for the gospel meant that Paul's aim in life was to live, to preach this gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is very important because Paul's job wasn't to go around healing people. It wasn't going around to build a big church or to make a name for himself, but to preach and to be set apart for the gospel of God. Now, why is this very important right from the very beginning? It was very important for the first audience that received the letter of Romans, but it's very important for us today. Because where the news comes from is just as important as the news. See, in the world that we live in, there's news everywhere, but why do we believe the news? Because we believe the source in which it comes from. So I remember my dad um, only recently got a, a, an iPhone. Actually, not that recent, just maybe a, what, three or four years ago. And before that, he'd always just use his mobile phone for just you know, SMSing and, and making telephone calls. So when he got his phone, his, his iPhone, he was introduced to the, to the wonderful world of social media and the internet. And initially, he used to forward us all this really weird news. You know, so he's all this golf khaki, and then he'll be sending us videos and photographs of how in China they've developed an anti-gravity car. Right? He'll be like, oh, guess what? They're, you know, they've developed this anti-gravity car. We don't need to use wheels anymore. And then he'll be sending us news about how Lee Kuan Yew had died. And then he'll be sending us news about how the opposition had won all these seats before the results came out because he had inside knowledge from one of his friends. And my kids, who are very internet savvy, would always be saying, Akong, you can't always believe what people tell you on the internet. You can't always believe what people tell you because they have this photograph or that news. And I think that's very true. In the world that we live in, you have to check your source. Right? Just because people send you stuff on social media doesn't mean that it's true. And I think that's the same function as what we read here right at the very first verses in the book of Romans. Paul is saying, you need to listen to what I'm saying, you need to pay attention, because I'm not speaking on my own authority but I'm speaking with the authority of Jesus Christ. I have been called and set apart for His gospel. I have been called to be an authoritative messenger. Now he then goes on to say that this gospel is of God. It is of God. Well, what does it mean that He's been set apart for the gospel of God? Now I think one way we can understand it is that it is the gospel which is of God. It is from God, it is source from God, it is the source from which the gospel comes from. Right? So it is not some sort of creative writing, it's not as if 
you know, Paul just sat down one afternoon somewhere, wherever he was, and he had a cup of tea beside him, and he just decided to write a letter, and therefore you need to pay attention. No, he's saying, look, you need to pay attention because I'm telling you something that comes from God himself. And in the ancient world, very often the emperors, the Roman emperors, would, would make an edict. They would make a rule. And what they would do is they would get the heralds or the messengers or the proclaimers to go to all the town squares and all the major cities and to proclaim this message. And you would listen to this message not because the proclaimer had a particularly loud voice or he was very attractive or you know he was very authoritative, but you listen because it came from the emperor himself. So in the same way, if Li Xianlong wrote you a letter or the principal of your school wrote you a letter and you're a student and or you, the CEO of your company wrote you a letter, you would, you would pay attention because of who it came from. And the same way, this gospel, because it comes from God to us through Paul, means that we need to listen to it. But not only is the idea of gospel of God speak of the source of the gospel, but it also, I think, speaks of the content of the gospel. Because as we read here, it says that it's the gospel of God is the gospel about God. Right? The content is about God, but it's not just about God because we read next that it is a gospel not so much of God the Father, but, but God the Son. So it says here in verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son. See, that's the essence the substance of the gospel is the gospel of God, but the content is of Jesus as God. And I always remember how there was one lecturer I had in theological college, and I always felt that in some ways he was very pedantic. But I think when you reflect on it, there was a reason why he was very pedantic. He always said that you can never say the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. You know, because we always say, oh, you know, preach the gospel. But he always said that you must always say the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was very strict on that. If you were in class and he found you using the word the gospel, he would rebuke you and say, no, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that is what the good news is about. That's what the gospel, the good news is about. It's not just random good news or general good news or universal good news. It's good news, very specific in the person of Jesus Christ. So what do we learn about this Jesus Christ for whom this good news is about? Well, surprisingly, in verse 2, we read that the gospel is about, is about the one who is promised. Now, that's very shocking because nowadays when you ask someone what is the good news, you don't think so much of the good news as the promised one. You think of Jesus Christ as just Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the Savior, the Lord. But why is he the promised one? Because it seems as if for Paul and for God, the fact that he was promised is really important. See, why is it so important that, that Jesus is the promised one? Well, I guess in many ways, it is to show us again, as the audience, that Jesus was not an invention. Right? Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Jesus was the one, the goal, the end point for which the Old Testament was pointing to. And that's why I always think of Jesus that way. He is the promised one and therefore leads to other things. 
So you know Jose Mourinho could be the special one, right? Or Jurgen Klopp could be the normal one. But Jesus Christ is always the promised one. And I think that's a very important lesson for us. I remember when I first came to become a Christian, I studied the Bible with the intention of trying to find out if the Bible was historical and Jesus was real as a historical figure. But what I found after reading the Bible quite a few times with a pastor was that Jesus wasn't just a historical figure, but he was a fulfillment figure. He was a promise figure. And that was what led me to become a Christian because I couldn't understand how could a person in Jesus fulfill all these different prophecies about himself in the Bible. And therefore, when you read skeptics who say that Jesus was just like, you know, the Da Vinci Code, who say, oh, Jesus was just the invention of Constantinople when he got together the Council of Nicaea. Or Jesus was just the invention of the disciples. That's altogether wrong. Because Jesus was not the invention of the disciples or Constantinople or some later Christian leaders. Jesus was actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And that's so important for us to make, to, the distinction to make, and for us to understand. And why was he the promised one? What was promised about him? Well, if we read on, we read that he was promised the fulfillment as to the son in his earthly life to be a descendant of David. Now you sort of think, what is so important about someone being the descendant of David? Why is it so important that God had promised that Jesus would be a descendant of David? I mean, it's just as easy to me to say, you know, one day, if my sons, Joshua and Benjamin, have children and they're hopefully male, they will be an Ong in a hundred years. But what is the big deal? Well, it is a big deal in the Bible because God had promised that the descendant of David one of them would be someone given unlimited, totally vast power for eternity as king. 1,000 years before the birth of David, God had said to um, David, his uh, pre-predecessor, he said, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise you up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish his king, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men and with the floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So Jesus is the promised one in the sense where he will be the one who will fulfill the promises given to David 1,000 years ago. He will be the one whose throne and kingdom will be established forever and will never be taken away. That's why it is important that Jesus fulfills that promise that he is in the line of David. But if that is not enough, it goes on to say, in verse 4, And who the Spirit of holiness was appointed, the Son of God, in power by His resurrection from the dead. 
So that means in his humanness, he was the messianic king in the line of David. But in his divinity, in the power of holiness, he was called the son of God who would rule forever and ever. Now we can get quite technical here, but I think that it is important to pay attention to what is being said. See, does this mean that Jesus was at one point a creature? Does it mean that at one point he wasn't really God, he became the Son of God? Right? Because that's what it says, right? By the Spirit of Holiness, he was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Now, definitely not because already in Luke chapter 3, when we read that Jesus, before he went to the, uh, the cross and before he was resurrected, he was already declared by God by a voice from heaven to say, You are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. So he was always the son of God. He was always God's son. But I think what it means is that we see the declaration of Jesus truly as God's son by the power of the resurrection. The resurrection shows us the true identity of Jesus. Now, I remember when I was in school, I think I've told this illustration before, because someone noted it before, but when I was in school, I, I went to school with uh, Go Chok Tong San, okay, Go Jin Hien. I don't think he remembers me anymore, but he was in school with me, he was, a, he was tall like his father, and we, you know, we used to be sort of, I wouldn't say I was a close friend, maybe he was an acquaintance. Lah. But then, at school, when you're young, in primary school, you don't really realize these things, who people's parents are, and they're completely unimportant to you. I mean, who cares who people's parents are, unless you go to their house or something, right? Then you think, wow, you've got a table, tennis table here, okay, that's great. But then it doesn't really matter to you who their parents are. But one day, I remember, many, many years ago, I looked at the newspaper, and somewhere there was a photograph of him, and, and it said, that, yeah, he, he was the son of Go Chok Tong. And I thought, okay, wow, he really is the son of Go Chok Tong. Not that... I didn't really believe it, but it was unimportant to me. But the newspaper declared quite clearly to me that he was Go Chok Tong's son. But how much more powerful is the declaration of God to the identity of Jesus? Because Jesus was resurrected from the dead to declare to us his true identity, that he was the Son of God. And this fulfills the prophecy in Psalm chapter 2, because in Psalm chapter 2, which is up here, it says that one day, as the nations are rebelling against God, God will send His own Son. He will install His Son as King on Zion, His holy hill. And this King will rule for eternity, and all mankind will have to come to Him and submit to Him, lest they be destroyed by Him. Now, I'm not sure that I should really share this with you, because... I remember a sermon which I heard many, many years ago which really stimulated my thinking and I thought, well, maybe I'll stimulate your thinking too. But someone actually said, this is Philip Jensen, some of you may know this person, he, he was saying that actually the word here is not just the word declaration as in understanding as he's declared and shown to be who he really is, but it, it is in the word appointment. That means in some sense, Jesus was always God's son, but he had to go through the cross and the resurrection to become the son of God, to earn that title and to sit at the right hand of God. So you think about it a moment. See, I see some of you frowning, so obviously some of you are paying attention. But it's very important because when Jesus was tempted by Satan, do you remember Jesus was tempted by Satan? 
And what was the last temptation? You remember the temptation was, or was it the second temptation? But one of the temptations was that Satan said, you know, follow me and you have all these kingdoms, right? But then Jesus said, no, he had to go through, another way, he had to go through the cross and the resurrection to, to earn his rightful rule. So some people actually say that Son of God is actually a title which is where Jesus goes through the death and the resurrection to, to fulfill what he was meant to fulfill to become the ruler in God. And that's why it ends there that it says, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I think that those four words capture here the full essence of who Jesus is because Jesus, uh, the next slide, is his humanity, right? He's fully man, born of a womb of a woman. That's who he is, Jesus. But he's also Christ. As the Christ, he is the Messianic king in the line of David. But he's also our Lord because he's also God, the supreme ruler of the universe. So this is what the gospel is about. It's about Jesus Christ, fully man, Davidic king, but yet he is also God who rules forever and ever. Now, I think this is very important for us to be very clear in our minds. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Someone came up to you and said, what is the gospel? It's essential for you to have it sharp in your mind because there are many, many people out there who are very confused about what the gospel is. So, if you go to some of the bookshops, you might see this person who will remain unnamed because it's being recorded. And uh, this same person. And you'll notice that their understanding of the gospel is very different from the book of Romans and what God tells us the understanding of the gospel is. So if you look at the back of the blurb, oh, I didn't type this down, but you can read it yourself, you can see that it has nothing, nothing at all similar with what we have just read in Romans chapter 1, verse 2 to verse 5. It's got nothing to do with Jesus as the Christ, as God. It's all about, what's that yellow highlighted word? Me. The gospel is all about me, right? The gospel of me. It's not the gospel of God. And I think it's very important for us to recognize this is not going to be a gospel that can save you. Because it's not a gospel of God. It's all about a gospel of me. And if you don't have the right gospel, then, well, you can't even get a right head start. So last week, uh, Minkit I think a few weeks ago, Minkit sent this cartoon. Uh, if you are in some of the WhatsApp groups, um, it's quite interesting because you know you close your eyes for a few hours and you wake up and there are 82 messages. So within one of the messages, people are sending all sorts of funny cartoons. And I think it's very important because if you don't have the right understanding of the gospel, then it's very easy for you to be misled in terms of what you really want to hear. Now obviously this knowledge is not just for the sake of knowledge because the Bible tells us that this knowledge is for a purpose. Okay, So what's the purpose? In verse 5 it says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Again, in verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteousness will live, sorry, the righteous will live by faith. 
Now, what happens during a sermon and a Bible study that is different from what happens in a lecture, in a university, in an ITE, in poly, or in school? And both of them are the impartation of knowledge, right? We get knowledge, we sit here, we learn new things, hopefully. And uh, what's the difference? What's the difference between church, Bible study, and university, or poly, or JC, or ITE? Well, the difference is that fundamentally, when you listen to the gospel, it has the power of salvation. It has the power of salvation. It has the ability to save you. Whereas, if you listen to other knowledge, it doesn't seem to have that power to save you. It's just knowledge for the, the general revelation of this world, where we look at nature, where we learn things about this world, but it doesn't have the power to save you. And I think that's, again, the importance of why we come to the gospel. When you come to the gospel, there must be something in it more than just knowledge. It must have something more than that. And how does it have that power to save? Why does it have the power of salvation from God? Well, in verse 17, it says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I want you to look at that phrase for a moment and ask yourself, what does it really mean? For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What does it mean that the righteousness of God is revealed? What is this righteousness that is in view here? Well, it tells us that in the gospel, God gives us the gift of, of righteousness. He shows us how we receive His righteousness. Now, some people may think that there are more valuable gifts in this world that you can receive. Maybe God could have given me a car instead, or a house, or maybe a holiday. But in the gospel, you are given something that is invaluable, that you will never be able to earn, even if you work for a million years or tried your very best. It is God's righteousness. And in the gospel, we learn how to receive the gift of righteousness. Because we are those who are unrighteous, God is the perfect judge and we are totally sinful before Him. We are wrong and wrong, wrong. We are unrighteous totally. But in the gospel, God shows us a way in which we can be given righteousness and have that unrighteousness taken away from us instead. So I like uh, watching this um, TV series, The Walking Dead. I don't know whether you think it's inappropriate for a Christian or a pastor to watch Walking Dead, but I, I really like it. And actually, it's funny because in the first couple of episodes, my wife didn't like it all. Then one day, she sat next to me very reluctantly folding clothes. And after watching it for one episode, she got hooked. Now she watches it with me. But I think that in many ways, we are The Walking Dead. We are Walking Dead not just because we are dead in a living way, but we're dead spiritually before God, we are dead in an eternal way, because we are all unrighteous before God, and we face judgment and eternal condemnation. But in the gospel, God gives us life because we have this gift of righteousness. If we have this righteousness, we no longer face judgment, we now live, we are no longer the walking dead. And how do we receive this gift of righteousness, this gift of being declared 
not guilty. Well, the way is it says there that it is by faith. Salvation, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It's like literally saying that salvation is by faith from A to Z. You know, after A to Z, there are no more alphabets. That means there is no other way to be saved except from your faith right from the beginning to the end. You cannot work in any way to contribute your salvation. It is a gift. All you need to do is to accept and to believe. That is the power of God in the gospel. Now for those of us who have not yet been saved or have not yet accepted the gift of righteousness, I would like to challenge you and say that you are living in grave danger. You need to accept the gift of God's righteousness today. You need to feel the power of God's salvation today. Because that's what the gospel message is all about. God is revealing the way to be saved and all you need to do is believe in Jesus as the Christ and as your Lord. I was reading a newspaper last week that Bill Gates reads an average of five books a week. Uh, That's quite a lot. I know some people who probably average five books in five years, right? But he reads five books a week. okay, And he doesn't read like, you know... Uh, very sort of trashy novels. He reads books like on social commentary, history, biology, science, environmental issues. Now, I felt a bit sorry for Bill Gates because when I read his article, I was thinking, you read so much, but yet you don't seem to have read the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you spend all your time, your intellect reading all these things, but you don't read the thing that really matters, the thing that can really save you, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how sad it is, because it is only in in the gospel of Jesus that you will find true salvation, that you will truly find eternal life. So if you're out there right now and you're listening to this sermon and you have not read the gospel of Jesus and you do not know the power of God's salvation, then I would challenge you to spend some time to read it so that you will know the power of God's salvation. Now, again, I don't want to be too chim here, but I want you to ask yourself the question again. It says, what does it mean when it says that in the gospel a righteousness of God is revealed? Now, I think it doesn't just mean the gift of righteousness, but it also means transforming righteousness. So I want you to look at that phrase a bit more. You see, in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed. It doesn't just show you how to be saved, but how to be transformed into righteousness. Now you may be asking me the question, well, why do you say that? Why do you say that the righteousness from God, the righteousness of God, which is being revealed, is not just a gift, but a transformation? Because... In the first section, in verse 11 to verse 15, Paul writes about how he really wants to come to Rome to see these Christians whose faith is being reported all over the world. So these are are strong Christians, these are good Christians, these these are Christians who 
are seemingly good in their faith. But look at what he says. He says, in verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I may, might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. See, the gospel is not just preached to those who are unconverted, but Paul wants to preach the gospel to those who are already converted. In fact, they are strong in the faith. And why does he want to preach to them? Because he wants them to be strong. He wants to give them a gift. He wants to have a harvest among them, not just in terms of converts, but so that the fruit of righteousness may be harvested among them. So the righteousness that we get from reading the gospel is not just to be converted, but to have the righteous life that God wants us to live. See, that's why in verse 5 it says that Paul has received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. See, obedience flows out of faith. And that obedience is the righteousness that God desires, the transformative righteousness that comes from following God. Now, there are many Christians today who unfortunately do not have a faith which leads to obedience and righteousness. And I think that as we read the book of Romans, you would question whether that sort of faith can actually save you. Because without the transformative righteousness that comes from the gospel, then you'd sort of ask whether that faith was effective or sincere or genuine or real or... And I think that's why I want to end by saying to those of us who are Christians that we must keep coming back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that we begin with and then we put aside for the rest of our Christian life, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that we keep coming back to over and over and over again because it transforms and changes us to be more and more righteous and pleasing to God. So I began by saying that the newspaper, unfortunately, is all news very quickly. Um, how many of you read uh, last year's newspaper? There's no point, right? It's over already. How many of you read last week's newspaper? Nobody reads last week's newspaper. It's not news anymore. But it's different, you see. When you read the Bible, it's still relevant. It still applies. It's still important. And we have to keep reading and reading it because it keeps changing us. It is the power to save us. It is something in which it teaches us how to obey as a result of our faith. So I always remember how when I was a very young Christian, I went to a church camp. And again, uh, Joshua Ng, I think, was a speaker. He was the guy who preached at our church camp. And he was challenging us and he said to us, how many of you spend more time reading the newspaper than you do the Bible? And um, I think that particularly affected me because, you know, I read so much newspaper, right? right? 
I mean, there are some people who never read the newspaper also. They obviously say, oh, of course I read the Bible more because I never read the newspaper, so five minutes is more than zero. But I think it's a very important question. How much of our time do we read the real good news of Jesus Christ, which has eternal consequences? And how much of our time is wasted reading news every day, which passes away every day? And I think it's more than that. I've just been reflecting, especially this week, how when I do my quiet time, I read the Bible, I feel so much more positive and refreshed and my outlook is so much more eternal and significant than when I read the newspaper because this week is full of bad news. You know, there's like Iran and Saudi Arabia might be going to war. Then I see people in America shooting each other. Then I see people in Germany, you know, about these women being molested. Then I read about China's stock market crashing. Then I see about uh, North Korea launching a missile I think it's much better to read the Bible. Right? It's, a, it's a lot more positive. There's a lot more good news. I know that there's going to be a resolution. Whereas when I read the newspaper, page after page, uh, it's just bad news, except maybe the COE is going down. Right? <laughs> right. So I think my challenge to, to myself and to you is that really if, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of salvation, and it is teaching us how to be transformed in our righteousness, then we need to keep reading it. We need to be disciplined in reading it. It is the power that is at work through it that changes us. As we read it, as we are transformed, as our minds are transformed, as we think of the eternal things, as we are reminded of what Jesus has done, of God's grace and mercy, it keeps us going, it keeps us living the right way. So I hope that this is a great encouragement for all of us to keep reading God's word and to keep obeying it as we look forward to Jesus Christ coming again, truly as the fulfillment that he is the Christ and he is our Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we want to thank you for your powerful word, which is indeed your power. Help us to see that it is your power of salvation because it gives us the gift of righteousness. And it doesn't end there, that even with that gift of righteousness, as we read it, it is your power to transform us so that we may be more righteous and obedient before you. That as we live in this life, we are strengthened as we read your word. As we read your word, we will continue to bear fruit in a mighty harvest, so that we are truly ready when Jesus comes once again. And we pray for each and every one of us here that we will heed your word and not ignore it and to keep coming back to your word over and over again, to keep feeding on it and to really trust in it. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.